Well, kia ora and welcome to everyone to the Weekly Hoon. I'm Bernard Hickey for the Kaka and our co-host is on the other side of the world, almost exactly through the centre of the world to somewhere in Spain, Peter Bale. G'day, Peter. Hi, Bernard. How are you? Everything's, everything's excellent here. And you're actually true because just up about 30 kilometres away from me is a place called Setanil, which is a, a, a weird cave village that was, um, you know, instead of building going up this, to, to protect themselves from the Moors and various, else, various others, this town um, went into caves. And if you drill a hole through Sitanil, supposedly, you end up in uh, basically Hearn Bay. So I'm more or less oh. at home. Oh, right. That would have been much faster to go, to go through right. than, than probably right. flying via LA and whereas there are other places. Well, it's wonderful. Right. How are you, Robert? I'm fine, Professor thanks, Peter. Uh, good to see you. Now, I was a bit concerned to see that you were on bloody Sean Plunkett. Are you are you trying to become an equal opportunities uh, guest star? <laughs> no, not really. Uh, Sean insisted I should come on, so. And spreading spreading the joy. Um, it's great to see you, um, Professor Robert Patman from the Otago University thanks, or University of Otago. Um, uh, and we're, we're going to crack on this week and talk about uh, what's happening in uh, geopolitics. So much to um, to go through. Uh, it really has been a week where everyone's focused on what the big players are doing and what it means for us. Uh, firstly, um, Robert, what did you make of the New Zealand agreement to join the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework that uh, America has come up with instead of joining the... the CPTPPA. You mean America instead of America joining it? Yes. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Um, no worries. Um, I thought it was a deaf political touch, actually, because um, it's a way of staying on good terms with the United States. It also provides the opportunity to... Uh, the Prime Minister, of course, is in the United States at the moment and has secured a meeting with the President and the Vice President next Tuesday, I believe. Uh, it's also an opportunity to stress the Biden administration that they really should uh, join the comprehensive and progressive Trans-Pacific Partnership. But uh, work. Getting that out. I, I don't think that will be acceptable for domestic political reasons. Um, but I think the I, I think the government has also reminded people that it sees its priority as the comprehensive and Trans-Pacific Partnership in terms of getting tariffs down. So. You know, we've got the best of both worlds, really. We've kept on side with the Americans um, and we haven't weakened our commitment to the Trans-Pacific Partnership. And I actually think there are American voices which is supporting um, the New Zealand position that America should really jo join the Comprehensive and Trans-Pacific mm. Partnership. People on Wall Street have been saying this for a long time. And in a sense, by creating <laughs> this new mechanism, which is, I believe, the the um, Indo-Pacific economic framework is basically to improve the integrity of supply chains, which, of course, is welcome uh, for a global trader like New Zealand, a small but nevertheless global trader. Um, so, you know, it's very much in our interest to be there. So I, I think the government handled it relatively well. Were you surprised, though, or I mean, as a former dairy farmer's son, I was disappointed to see this deal actually has no extra trade access for New Zealand exporters into America. So what's the point if we, we can't get the Americans into our trading zone? Um, I think the perception is that the Americans, by laying out this agreement, which involves 13 countries at the moment, could well take steps to secure 
very important routes of trade for uh, our country. And of course, there is a lot of uncertainty around China at the moment. I know we're going to discuss that shortly. So I think it's a form of insurance. And um, I think, although it doesn't deliver anything tangible, um, and the details have to be worked out yet. So you could argue that maybe by being there at the outset, New Zealand can influence the agreement and the details. So maybe there may be something coming out of it in the future. Whereas if we'd spurn the opportunity, it probably wouldn't have made a lot of sense. There's probably a bit too much spurning been going on lately, hasn't there too, Robert? I mean, New Zealand's getting getting ticked off every now and then or getting a quick clip around the ear for not, you know, it's not part of Quad. It doesn't sign the same uh, memos on, you know, panicking memos on uh, Chinese intrusion into the South Pacific. Well, yeah, New, Ze New Zealand's got to be sort of diplomatically active, doesn't it? Well, New Zealand's got a different worldview from the United States and from the UK and possibly Australia. And it's it's much more, it's not just about defending the international rules-based order, it's about deepening it. And um, deepening it means, you know, taking taking on such things as uh, reforming the UN Security Council, which I don't think any of the permanent five are particularly keen on at the moment. So I think New Zealand's position is slightly different. And, um, I, you know, I don't think this erodes New Zealand's independent foreign policy. I was actually, uh, you probably saw some of the comments that the Prime Minister has made in the United States. I was struck by the fact that she did reaffirm what she said was New Zealand's fierce attachment to an independent foreign policy, which I think is code for saying that we're reserved the right not to be an echo of the United States and Australia on security issues. And one of the reasons this was so interesting is because at, at the same time, the Chinese foreign minister, uh, Wang Yi, has just started a, a trip to the Pacific and not for a holiday. <laughs> He's no. uh, first off starting in the Solomon Islands, but then going to eight other countries to offer what seems to be a very in-depth and uh, detailed set of agreements or arrangements uh, or alliances with various Pacific countries, including free trade, more investment, um, security and policing cooperation. Uh, what did you make of this uh, open offer to the Pacific to cozy up to China? I think it's basically a bid to create a Chinese sphere of influence in the um, Pacific Islands region. The reason I say that is that looking at accounts of the the de, you know the, some of the accounts of the agreement that's been printed, uh, I noticed the linkage between um, the economic proposals and the security proposals. I think many Pacific Island countries have assumed up to now they could decouple economics from security arrangements. That is, they could enjoy having perhaps closer economic relations with China without in any way having um, a full-blown security attachment. But this proposal, which is directed at 10 countries, suggests actually that they can only enjoy the full benefits of economic cooperation if they're willing to accept security arrangements with China. So I think that um, this is a far-reaching, ambitious agreement. Um, I think the, there's already been pushback from the president um, of the Federation of Micronesia, so um, I, I think there'll be pushback elsewhere. I mean, China does have a problem. It's got a deeply unattractive political system. And so, in a sense, that makes its dip diplomacy even more aggressive because, um, it, it, you know, it, it, I think it has to present... A re I think what it's trying to do here is to say to the Pacific Islands, we can offer a lot more 
if you sign up for the whole package, then say Australia, New Zealand and the United States are prepared mm. to do so. And it, it's going to be interesting to see how this plays out. I think also, the, the also, view from... Also, Robert, they're not, going to view, they're not going to interfere the, the same uh, way. Yeah, the Pacific Islands Forum, uh, which is coming up, I think, in July, could be a very interesting occasion because I think our foreign minister said um, in the last 24 hours that she expects these ideas to be carefully scrutinised there. Sorry, Peter, go yeah, I, thought, I thought the Penny, the Penny Wong interest, the, the new Australian foreign minister uh, comments, I thought were extremely interesting. And I have a slightly, well, I'm, going, I'm going to take in my next North and South column, uh, coming to a news agent near you, a slightly uh, uh, different view on this, which is, which is that you know, China is a, is a Pacific power. It is, you know, it is part of it, it's a Pacific nation. It also has some quite extraordinary um, domestic, if you like, interests in some of these places with large Chinese, Chinese mm. uh, communities that tend to get, you know, as they did in the Solomon Islands and Honiara, tend to get the, you know, the, the sharp end of any civil unrest. Um, you've also seen, you know, the, the, the uh, Chinese authorities quite happy to go into uh, Fiji directly to collect, um, you know, Chinese that are, that are doing things that they don't entirely like. I mean, China has a stake in this area, and I, I just can't believe that we don't need to actually have uh, a little more sophisticated diplomatic dialogue with, with China. I think it's a fair point, Peter. The question is whether the Chinese in the Pacific Islands would want to be protected by, um, you know, the, uh, the ruling Communist Party of China and, and its diplomacy. And, um, yeah, I mean, it, it, China, you're right, is a Pacific power, albeit quite distant from um, the Pacific Islands complex. Uh, I think... The interesting thing for me as a, as a political scientist or international relations specialist is the fact that both Australia and New Zealand seem to have been slightly surprised by this development. And um, why I say that is that clearly uh, both New Zealand and Australia has very good links with the Pacific Islands. We've both seen it, both countries have seen it as a vital region. I think something more, more than 60% of New Zealand's overseas development aid goes there. And yet we seem to have been quite surprised by just how ambitious this China effort is. And of course, it follows on from the China-Solomon Islands agreement. So. Yeah, that, yeah, that was the preview really of the, um, the risk here for Australia and New Zealand. Um, Robert, um, do you think that, that we're um, reaping the, 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 the whirlwind, if you like, of um, not paying enough attention to the Pacific or pumping enough aid into the Pacific in recent years. And I think in particular here of the Australians who slashed their aid budget into the Pacific under Tony Abbott dramatically. And uh, regularly, um, the Pacific Islands have been pretty unhappy with both Australia and New Zealand on climate change issues. Uh, do you think, you know, we, we deserve a bit of a kicking here? Well, I think we are not the only show in town. And China now is a full-blown superpower. Uh, it's second only to the United States. And I suppose it believes it now has is entitled to all the diplomatic perks, global perks that most superpowers aspire to. So, yes, I mean, uh, I, I think New Zealand has been making efforts since 2017 or thereabouts with a Pacific reset when Mr. Peters was foreign minister um, and the naming of China as a threat to the rules-based order uh, by the defense ministry of New Zealand since 2008. So I think there has been a, a re, uh, if you like, 
a reckoning or, or, or a reassessment. And I think New Zealand has stepped up its efforts. But whether it was sort of too little or too late, I'm not quite sure. But what is quite clear now is that some of the actors in the region are quite happy to plug into the growing rivalry between the United States and China in order to maximize support for themselves. The Solomons are clearly mm. trying to do this. When the, when the prime minister of the Solomons, Mr. Sogavari, was challenged about the agreement, he said, well, we've already got a security agreement with Australia, so we thought we'd have one with China. <laughs> and um, by the way, they're not going to build a military base here. So that remains to be seen. But mm. the point to note here is, what they are doing is being, you know, it's what many small countries did during the Cold War. And I, I don't think we're in a Cold War, by the way, but they're, they're taking advantage of geopolitical rivalry in order to Absolutely. maximize their aid for themselves. Yeah. Now, and, and when you say, but when you say, Robert, that the that the Pacific kind of nations don't see, see the CCP as a problem, I'm not sure that Bananarama sees the CCP as, CCP as a problem. He's, you know, Fiji tends to see China as a, as, as a pretty good example of how to keep a population under control. Well, I think you've just identified a crucial factor, which is a big worry to New Zealand, Australia and US, which is that if you like, inverted commas, the strongman leaders in the Pacific Islands may see a very nice fit between their political operational style and having China as a close ally, because they know that China is not going to raise any embarrassing questions about human rights. And... Mm about the arbitrary detention of political opponents, etc. So, um, you know, China does have its attractions for the sort of strong man political leadership. And uh, from our point of view, that's worrying because it may be that as China's role grows, so mm -hmm. does the erosion of democratic norms in the Pacific Island region. Mm, it was yeah, interesting. I think, I think, but just, but just I took, if you think of Michael Field, I'm sorry, the, you know, the, who's an old mm. colleague of um, Bernard's and mine, uh, and and can you know can go on a bit about this. But you know, if you look at the history of New Zealand from 1919 forward into Samoa. Uh, you know, Australian blackbirding. I mean, the, the Pacific, we have a fairly we we think we have our kind of arms around the Pacific in a kind of somewhat patronising role, almost as a as a colonial power. Or perhaps we did until. And until um, Jacinda sent her dad to Tokelau, but um, you know this, the legacy is not that great. You know the the, the, the legacy is definitely the, you know the connection to Auckland, of course, is the you know the biggest Polynesian city in the world. But you know there's a, there's a lot to be gotten over here, and maybe China as a serious Pacific power is is more recognised in this, or is you know is entitled to some extent to reach across in a non-interfering way with real cash. Well, yes, and we can look at it another way. I mean, a lot of people are reacting in a negative fashion to the Chinese challenge. But China, it, it, you know, it's got advantages, but it's also got some disadvantages. And the competition, there's going to be pushback. We've already spoken about pushback to the Chinese initiative within the Pacific Islands. Um, but there's going to be pushback in, form, in the form of uh, intensified competition from New Zealand, Australia. You mentioned Penny Wong's statement that, Australia is going to redouble its effort and it's going to address an issue which is of core concern to many Pacific Island states, which is climate change. For mm -hmm. them, this is a, you know, an existential threat to them. And uh, I think their frustration is that the Scott Morrison government wasn't able to fully grasp how threatening many Pacific Island states mm -hmm. saw this problem. Mm -hmm. And so the fact you've got to change a government 
could make things more interesting. I think um, China is increasing the tempo of competition, but also they're going to have to put up, put they're going to have to encounter increased competition themselves. They're so, also quite good. At, they're also quite good at rather expanding various atolls and islands and things in order to um, land aircraft on them and defend them from the sea. Well, that's true, but um, it, it's you know I I, I I don't think there's any room for complacency. Um, but I think we just have to, you know, um, let's be quite clear, for much of the post-45 period, New Zealand, Australia and the US have had the Pacific Islands to themselves. And what we're getting, as the point you made earlier, Peter, is absolutely bang on in my judgment, we have to expect a rising China to be expressing interests in islands where there are Chinese citizens and where they see as being part of their strategic vision of becoming uh, an influential player and shaping the international order, and they see the Pacific Islands as part of that vision. And so, you um, probably want to want to segue to segue to um, to uh, Taiwan now as a, as another uh, yeah. important Pacific Island nation. That's that's that true. Right? Um, and uh, one of the big pieces of news this week was the speech from Anthony Blinken, uh, in which he described China as the long term a bigger threat than Russia, but also Joe Biden's. Um, meanderings perhaps or uh, misspeakings or just playing um, uh, off telling truth to power telling truth is telling it as it is in which um, Joe Biden essentially was asked uh, would the United States militarily defend Taiwan if China attacked it and he said yes of course when actually that's not (laughs) the avowed US position Uh, Robert what did you make of um, the the rather rather elderly US president's um, comments, which seemed at odds with the strategic ambiguity idea that America has adopted for a long time on China and Taiwan. I actually think that was much more calculating than people Mm. have given Biden credit for. And I think he was calculating when he said that Mr. Putin shouldn't remain in power, a comment which, after the war crimes committed there, he felt he had to make. A lot of people, of course, a lot of his people around him were furiously backpedaling after the Putin comment because many people, international observers, saw this as nothing less than a call for regime change in Moscow. Uh, but I think what uh, what Biden has signaled with his comments um, with regard to America will defend Taiwan if it is attacked by China, he used the term America will militarily intervene. Um, I think what he's doing there is he's suggesting when it, when it comes to core values and uh, Taiwan is a democracy, America will not tiptoe around an authoritarian state. And I in a sense, that was a really we have too. seen from the Biden administration, from the latter part of 2021, uh, a much more uh, matter-of-fact and robust stance. I mean, this business we spoke about before of making declassifying intelligence at a record rate to preempt mm-hmm. some of the decision-making around that Putin was making in relation to Ukraine. I think this is part of a pattern that's developing with the Biden administration, where Biden is, he was making implicit what was, sorry, he was making explicit, which had previously been implicit, um, that, I mean, America does have a strategic agreement with Taiwan. Everyone knows this, but as you quite rightly say, previous presidents have have basically danced around that a little bit. And, um, yep. you know, it's all been couched in, in, in certain conditions that applying. But I think what he was really saying is that 
he, he doesn't anticipate that necessarily happening. But if China was rash enough to take that step, they, they need to know that America's not bluffing. I think that's what he was really saying, that they can expect a full-blown confrontation. Why is he saying it this time? Because he knows that the United uh, China has been enormously discomforted by its, the behavior of its strategic partner, Russia. Yeah, because you yeah, know Russia was... has actually really put China on the spot, and you yeah. know both Russia and China were entertaining this self-indulgent vision of the West is failing. You had Chinese commentators talking about the crash of the United States within a decade. It's not happening, and I think Biden is, if you like, doubling down on the diplomatic embarrassment that China's facing over Russia because they made that joint statement. There's going to be no limits to the strategic partnership between Putin and Xi Jinping. And then, of course, whether he was privy to the invasion of uh, Ukraine, I, I'm not sure. But that invasion has caused enormous diplomatic embarrassment to China and is actually a threat to its economic interest, because as we've discussed before, China is a global economic player and it can't really, um, you know, go too far in supporting uh, Russia. And there's no indication they have. So I, well, I but think, how, how, how do you go on with extremely well-informed commentary when I'm trying to interrupt you from a long, <laughs> no, a long, a long way away with, a, go, go for with it, a kind of nodding, nodding assignment? I mean, I, I, I I um, do tend to see uh, Biden as a bit of a bumbling old fool, but I don't think he's been a bumbling old fool on Taiwan, any of his comments. I mean, he's made three, this is the third time he's, he's reinforced this. And I, I think he's removing the ambiguity. I think you're absolutely right that it is also about saying we've been, we were too ambiguous and not intervening enough about uh, Ukraine. But I thought it was also really interesting, and it's a, it's a nuance that even in the headline that somebody put on my bulletin this week got a little bit lost. I don't think he was misspeaking. I think he was he was laying out what, what really sits behind it, because he also said that the United States understands and agrees to the one China policy. The question is how that one China policy is, is mm. uh, executed. And he's yep. essentially saying there cannot be a military solution to this. There can only be there can only be an internal Chinese diplomatic solution with 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 Taiwan, and I thought that was a very nuanced, somewhat more nuanced than it actually got reported as. So in a way, he sort of put a new layer on top of the strategic ambiguity, another another uh, layer of uh, nuance on top of the strategic <laughs> ambiguity, which I, I think is um, interesting. And you're right, essentially tells the Chinese um, it's not going to be easy. Just to finally um, uh, look at, at, at the last sort of big item on the um, geopolitical uh, lineup this week. Um, uh, Robert, what did you make of the change of government in Australia? And how do you think this might change things for us and the region generally? Well, it, it does seem that the Australia and New Zealand will be more on the same page with regard to climate change. I mean, uh, Jacinda Ardern has described it once as the nuclear moment or the anti-nuclear moment of the 21st century referring to when New Zealand um, basically went against the tide when it embraced a non-nuclear uh, security policy. And I think she feels that the country should have shown more leadership on climate change in the past. And was she indicated that she believed her government should show more leadership on that, on, on uh, non-nuclear. And I think, uh, oh, sorry, on, on um, climate change. So I, I think it, that, that there's a possibility of the two countries speaking you know, from the same page on this in a way they couldn't 
before. Um, I still think there'll be irritations in in the relationship. I don't think we should get away from that. I think Australia will remain positioned closer to the United States than um, uh, than New Zealand. Interesting for me at the election was the fact that there was this development, I think the, the teal movement or something like that, it was called, <clears throat> people who were quite affluent, but actually really disenchanted by the two major parties with their lack of action on climate change. And of course, Australia has been profoundly affected uh, by climate change in a way we haven't in New Zealand so far. And although we've had a fair amount of extreme weather, um, but Australia has really experienced it. And um, yeah, I mean, I, I think that's interesting because it may be a sign that uh, the Labour Party may have to go further in this direction than it originally intended. Um, but yeah, I think overall, from the point of view of New Zealand's government, of this, this government, it's probably quite a positive development. There's no, there's no secret that, you know, although they had an affable um, relationship, Jacinda Ardern and Scott Morrison, uh, the Prime Minister didn't pull any punches about some of the differences. I'm not sure some of those differences will go, <laughs> particularly about the treatment of Kiwis in, in uh, Australia. But the, I, overall, I think it, it could bring the two countries closer together on some key international matters, such as climate change. But I wouldn't hold the breath I don't think anyone should hold their breath about uh, New Zealand and Australia magically agreeing on a new sort of united vision of a worldview, because I think Australia's view of the world is much more hierarchical on New Zealand. Peter, um, from a distance there, you're next to France. Fa France apparently has decided to... Um... <laughs> I'm at the other end of the country from France. Oh, well, well, do, yes, Bernard, do, closer do than ask me. me about France. Yeah. <laughs> um, France has decided to play nice with Australia now there's been a change of government. Did you see that? Yes, yes. Well, I mean, I, you know, I don't think they're going to get their submarines back, but then I don't think Australia's going to get the American ones anytime, anytime soon as well. Mm. But I mean, it's, you know, the, 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 uh, if you were Macron, you would have to welcome the arrival of, of Albanese and, and Penny Wong, having been lied to repeatedly um, by Scott Morrison. You know, the, he was treated very, very shabbily. It was personal too. Yeah, yeah, no, the, the French were very upset uh, um, in, in a way that um, you would be, I suppose, if you were misled. Um, mind you, I, I just cannot, I mean, maybe I'm a bit uh, a bit uh, old school on this or maybe just not very uh, r realistic, but um, to see the French upset about being stabbed in the back by, by a, an apparent um, friend, um, this from a country that... Uh, bombed a ship. Oh, is this, in, a, is, this a diatribe, is this a diatribe against France? Uh, J'accuse. Absolutely. Um, I don't think they, mm. they have a leg to stand on when they get grumpy with people in Australasia who, who, who mislead them about things. But that's maybe mm. I just need to go I think I think it. downstairs in this house, I have a copy of um, of Stanley Palmer's J'accuse uh, picture of the three frogs with their, with their, uh, with their snorkels on. I must, I must put that up. Oh, yeah. And they went around in a Newman's camper van. Do you remember the yeah. Newman's camper vans? Mm -hmm, I do. Yeah, yeah. And I remember David Long them staying in David Longy's timeshare. Is that right? I missed that. Yeah, absolutely. Don't, don't, David, David Longy had a timeshare, someone like Pi here. And, some and the, the French some stayed, the French stayed there. Mm -hmm. I missed that completely. Yeah, you couldn't make it up. <laughs> Fantastic. But Bernard, I don't think it was just the French who were upset with the Australians. <laughs> I think the were, ah. EU were. And that's more oh, right. serious. Ah, okay. The Australians. The Germans were not pleased. 
because uh, they, both France is not the only European actor with significant interest in the Indo-Pacific. And when AUKUS came together with the these three English-speaking countries came together with the, the mission of saving the Indo-Pacific or protecting the or rules-based order in the Indo-Pacific and um, key players in Europe hadn't been involved who have, I mean, Germany is a big trading partner, of course, with China. Germany is one of the biggest exporters in the world. So, yeah, I mean, they were, they, they were, I think, I think the irritation wasn't just confined to, to France. Bernard, I was very amused just, just to, just to sort of cap off this whole conversation about the TPP, CTP and so on. There was a very amusing um, line from a New Zealand, from a New Zealand diplomat about the, um, the, the, the importance and the, and the, and the, the size of the Indo-Pacific economic framework uh, and its lack of meat. And apparently a New Zealand diplomat told um, uh, Nikkei, it's like being invited to lunch during Ramadan. So we've, you know, we've, we've clearly got some good un undiplomatic diplomats there. Fantastic. Um, Professor Robert Patman from the University of Otago. Robert, thank you very much for joining us thank again you. on The Hoon. It's been great. Thank you um, very much. And uh, now we have um, joining us from uh, Wellington, Julianne Genta, who is the Green spokesperson on finance. Uh, Julianne, I think I've managed to uh, promote you into the panel. It's wonderful to see you. Please um, welcome into the panel uh, on the on the Hoon, uh, which is our weekly wrap, uh, bounce around the world's events. Great to see you. Great to see you. Great to join you. And to introduce you to Peter Bale. Julianne, Peter Bale, a friend of, I'm, I'm Bernard's theoretical co-host. Yes. Who, Lovely who, to meet you, Peter. Who joins us from? I have a, a gigantic carbon footprint at the moment. <laughs> from you Spain. look like you're in the northern hemisphere. At the moment, yes. Yeah, and we'll ask him what the temperature is um, at the end of the show, so I can't re literally reach out and throttle him through the through the screen. Um, uh, um, Julianne, great to have you on, in particular to talk um, monetary and fiscal policy, which is my idea of a fun time. And uh, I I wanted to ask you about the Reserve Bank's decision this week to put up the official cash rate by fifty basis points to two percent, which is the highest in six years, um, two 50 basis point increases in a row, the first time we've done that. And also the Reserve Bank lifted its forecast uh, for the next couple of years for the official cash rate track. It actually sees mortgage rates going up to potentially six percent over the next um, year or so. So what did you make of that uh, decision and that um, more hawkish pivot, I suppose, from the Reserve Bank? Well, I mean, it is somewhat understandable given the pressure they're under with inflation tracking higher than what was, you know, the target and what perhaps others would have expected at this point. But on the other hand, there's a question about how much our reserve bank can deal with inflation. That's a global phenomenon by putting up interest rates without really uh, affecting people here in quite an adverse way. Um, you know, we took the opportunity to try and call again for an inquiry into the government's response to COVID-19, um, particularly around the economic response and what the impact of that has been. Throughout that response, we were calling for the government to lean more on fiscal policy, including raising more revenue in a way that would be beneficial in multiple ways, like a wealth tax or a capital gains tax. You almost can't think of a better time for that policy to have been in place given that the quantitative easing immediately resulted in a huge uplift in uh, property values, which enriched those who are already well off and own property at really at the expense of 
those who don't own property here in New Zealand and who um, might be renting. What, so, what do you, what, what, why do you think the government seems reluctant to have a, a proper review of its economic response? And also the Reserve Bank, which although it's having a review into its monetary policy remit, which is a regular five-year thing, doesn't seem to want to um, admit any responsibility for the 45% rise in house prices that happened in those two years, or whether it overstimulated the economy with monetary policy in those first couple of years. I mean, I think I can understand why the Labour government doesn't want any sort of inquiry or review. It's the same as, you know, I've been pushing on the select committee for an inquiry into uh, construction cost inflation, which took off well before the rest of the general inflation. And I think that the difficulty is that in New Zealand with our short political term and the kind of news cycle and the way the opposition operates, that it just, any government is in a defensive position. And so they're, it's not, it's, they're not welcoming a kind of review or an inquiry that could actually help us inform better public policy now and in the future. And it would be great if we could develop a culture that supported that sort of thing. And it wasn't just um, reduced to attack lines from the opposition or, you know, oh God, Labour's gonna get a hit in the polls if there's any in, any um, sense that they made a mistake. Well, look, they did, they did forecast house prices to crash and they did forecast unemployment to go way up. And they forecast a much more dire economic picture at the beginning of the pandemic Personally, I didn't think that was going to happen because this wasn't a, a financial crisis. Um, it was GDP was taking a hit because we literally could not get together and exchange uh, goods and services. But the fundamentals of what enable us to trade, which is healthy people who were able to go do stuff for each other, um, were not, you know, we were safe. We just had to stay home for a few months. So I'm not surprised that it didn't get as bad as they forecast. And I think the problem was that maybe they did overshoot and the Reserve Bank as well, overshot in terms of um, fiscal stimulus, or mon sorry, monetary stimulus um, in an environment where we already had a constrained housing supply relative to demand. And, um, and you're never gonna have a quick response in housing, right? I mean, as soon as there's a mismatch, it's gonna take some time to, to increase the supply. And um, also on the select committee this week, um, questions from the National and ACT representatives about um, the government's fiscal policy, the accusation that the government was uh, being profligate, uh, essentially running loose fiscal policy, and this was forcing the Reserve Bank to tighten more than it otherwise would. What's, what's your view on that um, you know, trade-off, if you like, between fiscal and monetary policy, whether the government is actually being loose or not? Well, I, I don't think they're being, they're being loose. And I don't, and a lot of the inflation is, is a global phenomenon that we, we can't deal with simply by cutting government spending or government services. I mean, that's not going to affect oil prices. Um, there, there's a range of policies that we think government could pursue that would help deal with high supermarket prices um, with our transport systems reliance on imported oil, you know, so there's, there's things that we could do. Um, and there's things we must do around uh, construction supply materials um, to, you know, to make that sector more competitive and efficient and, and less subject to these global headwinds. Um, but National and X position is really almost um, just predictably populist and um, I think confusing because I, I mean, I believe Chris Luxon was saying on Morning Report that 
um, interest rates really terrible and, you know, interest rate rises are really terrible. It's really going to hurt people with mortgages and the reserve banks should be doing everything they can to rein in inflation. So, <laughs> One or the other. It should <laughs> Yeah, no, yeah. and and the other thing that uh, National and Active gone at is this idea that the Reserve Bank was forced by its new employment mandate to be much looser at the beginning of the pandemic than it otherwise would be. My reading of the response from the Reserve Bank on those questions on Wednesday and Thursday was that the Reserve Bank said, "No, nope, uh, the employment mandate makes perfect sense in our." Uh, inflation um, targeting framework and um, we didn't do a thing different simply because we had to support maximum sustainable employment what's what's your view on this you know employment mandate is confusing the reserve bank and makes them soft on inflation idea well i think the whole idea that we should have an independent institution that is uniquely targeting inflation was a kind of <laughs> neoliberal construct protecting certain interests and um, at the expense, and you know, maybe it was with the best intention that they really believed that, well, if we um, target inflation, that's gonna be the best for everyone. But I think the reality has been that that kind of narrow technocratic approach uh, ignores the fact that we live in a democracy and that you know, values are um, contested and that we, some people might want to um, deliver a, a fair society and not just ha have a sustainable level of unemployment that means there's cheap labor for employers or that um, those with assets, et cetera, are you know, able to protect their wealth over time. I, I just, I think it's, I think, I, I think they're trying to do the right thing with the dual mandate. And I think that the, the really the only thing that went wrong in the government's response potentially was not having a wealth tax or a capital gains tax, which would have sort of possibly meant that not so much of the stimulus, the monetary stimulus didn't go into the, the property market, or if it did, at least a fair amount was coming back, uh, which we could then put into services, into lifting incomes and um, all the other steps we need to take to have a fair society. And just, just finally, on the sort of fiscal and monetary front, um, from Peter's part of the world, because um, Spain's quite close to London, um, <laughs> I, it, uh, we had overnight the Rishi Sunak, or Dishi Rishi, as he's sometimes described in the tabloid media. Only, only by himself, I think. I, I think <laughs> um, Rishi Sunak um, did a U-turn and decided to put a 25% windfall profit tax on oil, gas, and electricity companies who had um, reported big, strong profits because of higher oil, gas, and power prices over the last couple of years. What's your view on this uh, idea of a windfall profit tax and uh, whether this is one way to pay for um, uh, extra help for those on lower incomes who are having to deal with higher energy prices? Are you asking me that? Yep. Yeah, yeah I think that sounds like a really sensible idea. And actually, that was the other the other thing, I guess, um, you know, if you look at what's happened post pandemic, the banks and the supermarkets, all the duopoly oligopies have uh, done really well out of the situation. And um, and that's it's just that's the part that's unsustainable. Um, it is surplus profits. And, and it's the same with our energy companies. I mean, we had um, that really interesting major energy users group. 
uh, look into Meridian over quite a long time period, finding they were making excess profit as well. So I think in New Zealand, we have a, a situation where a few big players and a few industries are able to make excess profit and we need some way of uh, distributing that more fairly so it doesn't just get captured by some narrow interests. On that, just finally on that issue of the potential review of the government's economic response to the COVID strategy, including the $20 billion worth of wage subsidies and resurgence payments, which um, by various measures uh, helped um, all, all companies increase their profits by about $18 billion in, the, in those two years after COVID, and which has helped fund, no doubt, a $20 billion dollar increase in the cash accounts of businesses in New Zealand, whether there's a case for a clawback, if you like, from companies that have produced large profits in the last couple of years. And in particular, I think of Fletcher Building, which accepted $68 million worth of wage subsidies. And this year alone is expecting a profit of $750 million and to return $650 million worth of dividends and share buybacks to shareholders. In effect, taxpayers around New Zealand have helped pay $68 million in cash to the shareholders of Fletcher Building, who at the same time have a 95% share of the jib board market in New Zealand and uh, have um, no doubt profited from an increase in uh, jib board prices. What's, what's your view on the clawback idea? Well, I, I can understand why people would be attracted to that. I mean, my view is make the tax system fair and make sure that you're getting it back that way. And and like the idea of kind of simple, easy to access, the kind of universal support during a time of crisis from the government, I think is a good thing. And that it's kind of like universal different universal benefits. Like we might say education should be free and people say, well, it's not fair that rich people's kids don't pay for education, you know, for tertiary education. But actually you do pay for it if you have a really progressive tax system. It's like those who do the best uh, pay pay more. And um, and that's how we make sure that, you know, we keep everyone equal. So rather than focusing on the, well, you guys made record profits and you took this government handout as like maybe the problem isn't the government handout the problem is not getting revenue on the other side julianne genta the green finance spokesperson talking to us from wellington julianne thank you very much for coming on to the hoon really appreciate it my pleasure cheers um and uh, time, Peter, for us to check the questions. Oh, bollocks. Well, you, you, you clearly didn't get my message to you asking if I was able to ask Julianne a couple oh, of questions. Oh, because I was dying Sorry. to ask her how, how effective she thinks the Greens have been, uh, given the state of the ERP. And also this, this question of whether uh, smaller parties in New Zealand, including including our friend Ruff Munji, might do... Oh, there she's come back. Oh, yeah, go on. Fantastic. Oh, fantastic. Hey, Julianne, we don't know each other yet, but hey, um, how effective... Do you I mean, and of course, it's only us, it's only us and Bernard's entire audience here. So you can, you can crap on your colleagues from the rest of the oh, party you, you just, This will be how, recorded and put out to an audience yeah. of millions tomorrow. Yeah. Thank you. How effective do you, do you feel the Green Party has been in the coalition again now or in, you know, as, as part of the, the government? And well, what lessons might you take from the Australian, uh, the, the rise of some of these smaller parties in Australia? Thank you. Sorry. Um, look, I, I actually think, the, the, firstly, the Greens are not in a coalition. Uh, we have a cooperation agreement. It's not that dissimilar to 2005 to 2008. Labor didn't need us to govern. 
Um, and so everything that we get is like nice to have, right? We, we're not getting it because they need our votes. Um, and I actually think that the strength of the relationships has enabled us to be more influential than we otherwise would have been in this term of government. And why that's important is because there's major institution building that needs to happen for effective action on climate change. And the idea that we could just sit on the cross benches and criticize labor and then get in, sweep in maybe in the next term and be able to get anything done, I think is misguided because if, if, we're, not, if we're not able to use every opportunity Every vote that was given to us, I think people, most people expected us to be as constructive as we could be in this term. And that does mean sometimes being, you know, a critical friend of labor. And it also means um, doing what we can to, to influence and get good green change to the extent it's possible without us having the power of, you know, threatening them not that we're not going to vote on something. So that's so, a very but, pragmatic response, um, you know, and, and, and I can totally understand it. And so how effective do you think, say, the Green Party has been and how effective do you think the Labour Party has been with the, the ERP and so on? Is, it just doesn't seem to be going I mean, far enough. I do, but, oh, no, it's definitely not far enough. And the Greens have said that. I mean, the Greens have said that in every communication that we've had have been the ERP is not good enough. Of course, the Green Party policy would be to do things quite differently. Um, this is a Labour majority government. They have taken up some of our policies and implemented them, like the clean car standard and discount, which is something that never would have happened if we hadn't had a Green Minister driving it last term. Uh, and then Labour needed some, some policies to reduce emissions mm -hmm. from transport. And they did it despite the, you know, what they would have normally seen as kind of insurmountable political headwinds, which I, you know, I was always trying to tell them like, look, if you just do this, it will, people will get over it and they'll see it works and it won't be a problem. And, and they did it to their credit. Um, so we, you know, finally we have the first month where a double cab ute wasn't in the top three most sold vehicles in New Zealand. And um, we had like record sales of low emissions vehicles. And that's all because of Green Party policy that we worked on last term. In the ERP, um, you know, I think James, and the Greens have done our absolute best to get good things in there, but we can't, we're not gonna pretend this is a Green Party ERP or what it would be like if the Labour Party needed the Greens to govern, we would be able to get a lot more into it. Um, but it, Australia is a different situation. And I think what we can take from the Australian election is heart that, um, you know, there is a electoral mandate out there for climate action and it needs to be taken. Now they had to take a different path, but the Greens, the Australian Greens did really well in the election. Unfortunately, I think in the lower house, Labour has enough to govern alone. So uh, they will have less influence than they would have wanted, but in the Senate, they do need the Greens. There's the Greens won 12 Senate seats, which is considerable. Mm. And the Teals were probably pretty <laughs> instrumental in getting out uh, liberal, urban liberals, um, who, you know, so, so really changing the government was, was in part down to the, to the Teal campaigns, but yeah. it's a different electoral system. So, um, here, firstly, uh, the sort of economically moderate person, um, can vote labor, you know, like they, they don't have this issue with, um, misogyny and politics to the same extent and labor is not a very left-wing party. So, um, I think the kind of urban types that may have voted Teal would probably be pretty comfortable with voting for Jacinda Ardern's Labour government. Do, do, you, think, um, do you think, Julianne, that, that, that there might be a, um, 
uh, a move, though, I mean, and I'm, and I'm, I'm going to include David, David Seymour in this, that some of these smaller parties, whether it's the Greens at the um, top party, may, may have a little bit more to offer in the sense that you've got a somewhat fatigued Labour government and, and a slightly amorphous National Party. I certainly exactly what so. they stand for. Uh, I certainly hope so, and I and I hope that the Greens will be growing our vote, um, you know, across the country and and in a position to have much more influence in the next government because then we can really ramp up the action uh, that has been started with the Zero Carbon Act infrastructure and the ERP. We can ramp that up so much faster if the Greens have real power. Um, you know, I I think the real difficulty, and I just want to plug my colleague Goris Garman's members bill on electoral reform. It's worth looking at that. That's been drawn from the ballot. The Greens are working to improve democracy across the board. And one of the elements of that is dropping the threshold for a party to get into parliament. And that would make it possible for a party like TOP, slightly more possible for them to break through. What we saw last time is that the national party's vote collapsed and only one and a half percent of it went to top, you know? So if there is a real demand for a blue green party, why didn't it go to top in that election when they they were in their second election um, and either went to act, you know, who don't want climate action at all um, and are kind of rabidly right wing um, or it, it went to labor. Could you, argue though, could, to vote. could you argue though that it would have been a difficult um, blue-green combo with Judith Collins as the uh, leader of the National Party. Um, and also, just, just finally, um, do, do, is there any suggestion or debate within the Green Party about revisiting the idea of, you know, uh, being open to, a, uh, to supporting a, a national government, if it came to that, to engineer some leverage in any negotiations <clears throat> I mean, I think the difficulty for us is that uh, most of our voters don't want us to work with national and it's not because of, um, you know, it's not really down to social welfare policy. It's, it's down to environmental policy. If you look at the national party, they are, their entire program is about environmental destruction and, 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 wasting time not taking action on climate change. So that makes it very difficult for us to work with them. Uh, and Labour, you know, look, they're not much better, but they, sorry, they, um, I shouldn't say that, they are, they are friends. They, they, they are better on rhetoric, okay? They are much better on rhetoric than, than the National Party. And, um, and I think that we could work together to be a strongly progressive government. I think they overshot, I don't think they expected to get a majority uh, this time, and I think they they kind of did too well for their own good. Do you not see any what an incredibly um, refreshing person you are, Mer uh, you are, Julianne? <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to get in trouble for this. I, we we don't keep. Don't worry. We interview. we don't we don't keep anything zipped up here, as it were. Certainly in no. our mouths. No, no. And and just finally, um, do do you think though that with a change of leadership of the National Party, I mean, they did support the. Um, Zero Carbon Act and have said that they support the new carbon uh, budget uh, targets, that um, there might be a, uh, a potential to revisit that? Or is it a bit more um, ingrained and uh, uh, cultural, if you like? I, no, I mean, I think it's really down to policy. And if we had a national party that was open to, um, I think that the precise wording of our 
political positioning remit was that we will we will talk to we will work with and, and constructively challenge any party that where we can make good progress on social environmental um and economic justice something to that effect sorry i don't have the exact words in front of me and so the point is that it's not just that you know we hate the national party because of some personal reason it's it's that they literally oppose any policies that would take us towards a more sustainable country for the most part i mean i'm trying to think of one policy they have that would be good um maybe the kermadex but even that they weren't doing that properly consulting with Manafenua, and that's really central to Tiriti or Waitangi is very central to the Greens um, approach. Mm. Well, Julianne, thank you very much for your thank time. You taking up a, taking up a, we've taken up a bit more of it than we we expected, okay. and we appreciate it. Thank you very thank you very much. And that's nice me, you know. Thank you. Cheers. Okay. Gosh, what um, a terrific and refreshing person, Bernard. Bloody hell. Y yes, um, Ju Julianne is. Um, always uh, a good chat, particularly on the policy issues. And um, uh, obviously, uh, as a, an, as, an assistant <laughs> minister in the last or the first, you know, Labour government from 2017 to well, the first term of this current government, 2017 to 2020, she was more involved in the, um, the, the policy decisions. Uh, effectively not a minister at the moment, but outside, uh, very much outside the government, whereas this arrangement the Green Party has with Labour, which is not a formal coalition, as she says, but... No, that was, I thought she did that very well, definitely. Yeah, yeah. But, um, but it is tough <laughs> to get that across to the public uh, when... Well, I think they... we, need, we need to have this podcast get a bit bigger because I'm not sure I've heard a politician in New Zealand be quite so effective, quite so uh, straight up and down. I mean, obviously she was she was being a little bit harsh in some respects about Labour, but, you know, it just shows that your podcast, Bernard, or our podcast, as some people think of it, um, really opens people up. I mean, I, I imagine if you'd made her a couple of gin and tonics like you did with Nicola Willis. Ah, yes, yes. Now we've got to get back into the gin and tonics. Currently I'm on um, COVID uh, recovery um, thing, but I'm hoping... Well, gin, quinine, quinine in the tonic quinine. is a... Ah. Is a is a is, is a definite plus for COVID. But can I also just point out uh, some somebody in the in the message said said, oh how nice it was to see a woman there. I mean we 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 have had, I mean not to defend ourselves, but we have had Nicola Willis, Elaine Monaghan, that extraordinarily academic from um from the Ukrainian academic from Canterbury. We've asked um Anne Marie Brady to come on a couple of times and yes. we uh we and we have asked for Chloe. Yes, no, and we, we hope to... But get, Chloe's and, been too busy filming incredibly expensive New Zealand on-air <laughs> documentaries that... Uh, we would have taken the money if they'd offered it to us, no. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, you're right. And it's a good point, though, and um, it's something we're keen to keen to um, bring on as many people... Yes, Stephen, we, we have... We, in the very early days of this, of this podcast, when, we, you know, when it was rough and ready, not the kind of finely tuned, highly produced thing it is now, <laughs> we did have Rough Munchie just before he was appointed, to, appointed the top... Uh, and I think we will have him again, what we've heard oh, at yes, some point. Yes, yes. He, no, he'll, he'll, talk, he'll talk the leg off an iron pot. Yes, and uh, has plenty to say with new policies and is definitely involved in the political scene. And I suspect, uh, and it was interesting, the last couple of polls, we have seen a blip up in top support. And uh, Julianne's right there when she says that um, changing the threshold from 5% potentially to 4% could, could have a major effect uh, on um, making it easier for these small parties to get in. Because actually, at the moment, when you look at the history of MMP, no small party 
has actually stayed in Parliament uh, or gotten into Parliament unless they were there before MMP or mm -hmm. had, a, had a single independent MP, if you like, who essentially was co-opted by one of the main parties. So I'm thinking there of initially ACT and uh, the United Future Party. Um, to, uh, to Party Māori has, has been um, in and out. Uh, but again, it's a, it's a spin-off from the Labour Party, you could argue, although um, that spin-off was a particularly um, painful episode. And we have yet to see, I think, a... Genuine brand Christ, new. Julianne's, Julianne's still on the still on the feed. Just listening listening to you talk bollocks about her party and intervening. I like this. Oh yeah, no, this is really that's fair enough. It's fair enough. Um, no, we're we're open and accountable here. <laughs> um, and uh, I think um, you know, I think it, we've yet to see a third party actually get into government during MMP who wasn't either there beforehand or. Um, uh, being essentially sponsored by one of the side parties. The Greens were part of the political landscape before MMP, I think. Uh, mm. But I think that lowering the threshold is the key thing and also getting rid of the uh, a coattail provision, which, which has uh, enabled these um, cosy uh, deals that were done over the mm. years. Is, I think uh, at, is a coattail provision, provision related to Waka jumping? Uh, Waka jumping was set up to... Um, uh, to uh, de-weaponize uh, uh, coat, the coattail provision, I think. Um, yeah, no, so it's um, the, the reform thing is an interesting piece of news this week. Uh, so the government has announced a review, uh, but at the same time, a private member's bill has been pulled from the ballot, which actually tries to make these changes on the fly, if you like, which would be really interesting. Peter, um, do you have a skateboarding dog? Well, not, not a terribly good skateboarding dog one, but there was the, I, I'll put a video up that's from Twitter of the last uh, payphone being removed from a New York street. So there are now no, you know, if you want to go somewhere that smells of urine and that takes all your money, then you, there's nothing left now. It's the last payphone that's been removed from the streets of New York. Wow. Well, actually, this week... Um, what was called Telecom, now called Spark, announced they, they've got a plan for all of the um, pay, pay phones in New Zealand uh, to essentially turn them into um, places where Yonks. you can use hotspots and that sort of thing. Sorry? You mean as, a, as opposed to the way that telecom, uh, British Telecom did and just turn them into places where people can advertise prostitution? Ah, yeah, well, that, luckily that hasn't happened. <laughs> it hasn't happened here. But it's they are one of the few remaining sort of public space, public device things mm. left in our public landscapes. And um, I think it's, uh, it's, it's interesting to see what could happen to them. You could do something, re some really interesting things around you know, uh, publicly accessible um, internet, um, allowing it as places for people to make emergency phone calls to the police or um, emergency mm. services, those sorts of things. Um, and I wouldn't surprise me in, in time to come that those sort of public devices and public spaces become really important and don't just get, you know, sold off or bold or, mm. or whatever. Um, Bernard, this is a very socialist way to see way to see the world again. Ah, are there any other are there any other questions that we need to answer from the or at least attempt an answer from the from the the uh, general public there? Yes, I think um, uh, thank you, Julianne. Sorry, I've just seen your question about um, the size of the green <laughs> vote. Uh, yes, uh, um, and 
refs in Spain. <laughs> just yeah, he's not in Spain with me, but I'll, I'll drop him a note and find out where he is. It's a big country. Yes, yes. No, I think we've pretty much covered it all there, unless there's some other questions anyone wants to throw in there at the last. Well, Bernard, minute. I was going to throw in something to you as well on the environment. I mean, the, the two, two things happened this week that I thought were really interesting, and I'm, I am feeling a little bit glum personally about... Um, about where things stand with uh, with with uh, climate change, and the, the Guardian had a piece overnight saying that the uh, fund man funds, which we all have, you know, pension funds and so on, will stuff suffer a seven hundred and fifty billion to one trillion setback uh, in their in their revenue because of their effectively holding oil stranded assets in the fossil fuel mm-hmm. industry. That's yeah. going to really bite. And then also you had this, the head of investment at HSBC saying essentially. In the time horizon of most investors, climate change is not only nothing to worry about, but it's too late and you can't worry about it and you meet and you need to get on to mitigation or adaptation. Yes, I think he's been helped in the process of not having to worry about things much um, by HSBC because they sacked him for saying that. Well, no, they suspended him. Suspended. Ah, oh, sorry. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, uh, that is an interesting point. Um but I think we live longer than we expect. And also for those people worried about, you know, the trillion dollar fall in the value of their assets in the last two weeks or whatever it is, they just need to sort of ignore it, hold tight. And then in a few years time, they'll be come back and there'll be more. Um, essentially because they're in an automatic way partic- participating in the um, growth of uh, the value of assets held by those few people who are in the market. Uh, rising inequality is um, a painful thing to watch, but at least when you're in a market uh, that is exposed to you know, quantitative easing and mm. rising profit shares, then <laughs> you get a little, little smidgen of it into your pension funds. And um, I'm a little bit more sanguine about all of that. The whole thing about um, climate change is so far away, we shouldn't need to worry about it as investors, I think is uh, where, where I say that we live longer than we expect, I think climate change happens sooner than we expect. Yeah, it's a very interesting, I, I thought that piece about the um, the New Zealand salmon, the King Salmon people in, in oh, yeah. uh, Marlborough having to, having to pull out was an extraordinary, because it's, it's such a tight, well, it's such a relatively small, change in temperature and for a, for a specific period of, of time. But I thought that was a really interesting kind of canary in the coal mine, if you can, if you can compare a salmon to a canary in the coal mine. And just to answer the question of how hot it is where I am, I, I'm on the coast, I'm not, I'm not inland, but in Seville on Friday, it was 37, today it's forecast to be 37 degrees. Um, and it'll probably be 40, 40 over the weekend. That's uh, unheard of at this, at this time of the year. Really? Wow. Um, so you need to be near the coast. And I suppose if you were inland in Spain, it would be much, much hotter, right? Well, Seville is, that's, yeah, Seville oh, yeah, is, yeah, Seville yeah. is inland. It, it has the, it has the uh, yeah, no, it's, it's an extraordinarily hot place. But the, the, the whole of the sort of inner Spain plateau, if you like, um, is, is getting extraordinarily hot. Wow. Um, here, we have, it's one of the windiest places in Europe. Uh, it has a particular wind called the Levante that comes... Uh, from the from the east, from the Sahara, and is um, progressively dumping more and more of the Sahara here. So I've got a beach on the end. Hot. 
I've got a beach on my roof, yeah. Oh, fantastic. Hey, Peter, it's wonderful to see you. And I'm actually quite jealous of your heat, although it is a little bit scary to hear that it's that hot in May in Spain. And um, I'm uh, uh, I'm looking forward to our um, chats next week. I had COVID this week, but I was really looking forward to making sure we did this again. And it's yeah. Well, I am, I am told, Bernard, that the, that the rain falls mainly in the plain around here. <laughs> you're gonna resist fair enough it's a good one <laughs> wonderful to see, see you, you all. later thank you very much everyone kakita no that has been another weekly hoon on the kaka i'm bernard hickey and you've been also with co-host peter bale in spain thank you bernard see you soon talk to you in a minute bye-bye